Happy Resurrection Day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, let's open up our Bibles today. We have a lot to cover, so I got to get into this right now. And let's get going. Into the book of Romans. I'm so happy today because as it seems the Holy Spirit works us out every year, when we come to Christmas or when we come to Easter, we want to preach a Christmas message and, a, and an Easter message, of course. But many times I'm already in a series like the book of Romans, and I'm always wondering, am I going to have to change a little bit what I'm going to be talking about just to make sure it fits the, the Easter message? But praise God, I believe today's message that I was going to preach anyway has everything to do with the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles... We're going to sort of scan through a little bit the book of Romans, read some things we've already read before, and read some verses that we have for today. Now, we are going to concentrate on verses 9 to 26 in chapter 3, but first, let's begin by reading, starting from chapter 1. So find that in your Bibles, and when you got it, you know what to do. Stand with me, and we'll read this together. Okay, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Same chapter, look at verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now go to chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading from verse 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Today's sermon message is salvation for everyone who believes. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God. I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And I can't think of a greater message to preach today on this Resurrection Sunday than the salvation of all who will put their trust in Jesus Christ. But as we consider those words, salvation 
for everyone who believes. Today I want to discuss three questions that somebody here may be asking. You hear this news that you can be saved through Jesus. And you might have some questions, and it's good to have some questions. And I want to sort of anticipate what a person sitting in their seat right now, three questions they may ask concerning the message of salvation. Question number one may be, why do I need to be saved? Question number two, who can save me? Question number three, how can I be sure? Amen. So let's get right into this with question number one. Why do I need to be saved? Isaiah chapter 64, verse 5. Isaiah, speaking to God, says, You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. God is angry with sin. And we as man, men and women, we have sinned against God and we continue in that sin. And according to Isaiah, the one thing we need, the one thing we need is to be saved. And so I want to look at Romans chapter 3. We didn't read all the verses just now, but we are going to go over from verse 10 all the way to verse 26. And I want to start out by considering this question, why do I need to be saved? Because, you know, there are a lot of people in the world today that will hear this message and they'll ask that question, well, why do I need to be saved? And, and what people tend to do is they look around with people standing around them in their lives, in their family, the people that they work with, and they say, well, wait a minute, why do I need to be saved? I'm not as bad as this person. I may have done some bad things, but certainly I'm not an Adolf Hitler. I mean, I can show you, God, some really bad people, and I haven't done as many bad things as them. The problem with man is that we look at each other to judge whether or not we need to be saved. We compare ourselves with one another, but we have to look at ourselves the way God sees us because God looks down upon this world from heaven. And he sees a much different picture of man. God has his point of view. And I remember when God looks down on this world, this dark, sin-filled world, it's amazing to me to remember that Jesus said, for God so loved the world. Well, what kind of world is this? What does God see when he looks upon mankind? So it begins with these words. Paul says, as it is written, he says. He's about to quote the Old Testament. As it is written. Meaning what was true in the ancient days is still true today. It's like God marks these words in stone and they do not change. As it is written. And then we see what God sees in man. So now in these following verses, God looks at man as man is without God. And what does God see? Well, he's going to consider three things here in these following verses. 
He looks upon men and he considers their works, their words, and their ways. And God, who knows every secret of every man and every woman, he looks down and this is what he sees. Beginning, beginning at verse 10 to verse 12, this is what God says. Not Pastor Heath, not just the Apostle Paul, but the Spirit of God who searches your hearts even right now. As he looks down from heaven, this is what God sees in mankind. He says in verse 10 to 12, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. So as far as man's works, God looks down upon man and his works and he says, there are none who are righteous. None who live a righteous life. There's none who understands the heart of God. There's no one who understands on their own that they are sinners in need of salvation. God says, no one seeks after me. Yeah, they may seek after this idol or that false god, and the Bible calls that a religion of demons. They may seek those things, but God says, no one seeks me. He says, all mankind, they've all turned aside. Just like sheep who are to follow the shepherd, but a sheep will so often wander off a different path. And before you know it, they're lost and they do not know how to get back to the shepherd. God looks upon man and he says, you have all turned aside and no one does good. No, not one. God looks at our works and he listens to our words. And what does God hear? He says, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. God says the mouth of man is like an open tomb. Just like a tomb where there's a dead body inside and you roll away the stone and the stench that comes out of that tomb, the stench of death. God says when man speaks, there's a stench that comes out because inside there's death. And as Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. God says there's death inside of man and all that comes out of man, it's like an open tomb. Their tongues practice deceit. How often do we lie? How often are we untruthful? and the things that we say, even to our own families and friends. Our lips, they have like poison in them. How often do we also attack people with the things that we say? We are capable of saying such awful things to people, speaking such nasty things to people, and it's destructive to people's lives. God says our mouths, they're full of cursing and bitterness. Today, I've noticed more than ever before that the young generation in the world, they speak so much foul language. And every time I hear a young person say that, I remind them, listen, if you're speaking foul language, it's because of a foul heart inside of you. 
If garbage is coming out of your mouth, it's because there's a dumpster inside of you unloading trash. You have to watch what you say. God hears our words and he knows we are like an open tomb. And then God considers our ways, our outlook on life, where we're going, where we're headed. And God says their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, according to God, our life, apart from God, is full of misery and destruction. And we cause destruction in other people as well. He also says we do not know the way of peace. Oh, people want peace. People search for peace, but they will never know peace apart from God. And as the Bible says, they are tossed to and fro, like in the ocean, back and forth in the waves. There is no settling. There is no rest. They do not know peace. And then God says there is no fear of God before their eyes. As they look ahead, as they plan their future, they consider everything except God. There's no acknowledgement of God. There's no respect for God. There's no worship of God. People instead want to do away with God. So God says, I look down upon the world. I see man. I see his works, his words, and his ways. And mankind is summed up by one word. Sinners. Sinners. That's what we are. Now then Paul tells us in verse 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 3. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, when I read that, I, I always remember anytime I read in the Bible about the Ten Commandments, every time I read of it, it's a reminder to me that I'm already a sinner. God didn't need to tell me the commandment not to lie. I've already been lying and I already knew it was wrong before I knew God said it was wrong. And that's true for all of us. God has already put it in you that you're a sinner. He gave the law to make it very plain and clear to you all. But the law is to show you your sinfulness and to draw you to salvation. God says through Paul, every mouth is stopped and all the world is guilty before God. Now, many years ago, maybe 20 years ago, I was coming home from work, driving in my car on a, a road that was on the side of the highway. And the, the speed limit of that road was 45 miles per hour. And I hardly ever obey the speed limits. And I remember on a, a certain day going home, I was driving 60 miles an hour on that road. And wouldn't you know it, there was a cop on the side of the road. And when I passed him, I held my breath and I saw in the rear view mirror, he's coming. His lights are on, he pulled me over. 
He came to my window. I gave him my driver's license and my registration and car insurance. And he told me the law. The speed limit, sir, is 45 miles per hour. I clocked you at 60 miles per hour. Sorry about that, officer. He went away and he came back and he gave me a ticket. And on the ticket, because I was going 15 miles over the speed limit, which was quite a bit, my ticket said not only the fine I have to pay, but he ordered me to appear in court, in the local court, to appear before that district judge. And so the date was set. I had to go to court. I presented myself to the judge. It was just me and the, the, the bailiff and the judge sitting on his, his bench. And the judge once again told me the law. And he said, according to our records, you broke the law by going 50 miles over. And he said to me, what do you plead? Meaning, do you plead guilty or not guilty? And in that moment, I thought to myself, what am I supposed to say? What else is there to say? And I said, your honor, I'm guilty. And with that, he signed a few forms. He stamped some things. I wrote out a check for the $150 fine I had to pay, and it was done. I left. Now, when all this happened, instead of it going the way that I just mentioned, I suppose I could have acted like the fool. And when the cop pulled me over and gave me a ticket and then said to me, now you have to appear before the judge on such and such date. If I were to be a fool, I might say, ha ha, there's no judge. There's no courtroom. I don't have to face any sort of judgment. I might say that, but what's going to happen if I don't appear? That police officer and five others will come to my house handcuff me, and they will drag me to court to face that judge. Or if I did go to court and face the judge, I suppose I could have said some foolish things. Maybe thinking that I could change the situation. Maybe before the judge, I could have said, listen, your honor, uh, okay, I did speed. Okay, I, I get it. I get it. But, you know, there are other people driving that day a lot faster than I was going, at least, Your Honor, I wasn't driving as fast as everybody else. What do you think? Am I still guilty? Of course I am. What if I said, Your Honor, listen, I'm not the one to blame. You see, my father taught me how to drive. And my father is a very fast driver. So all I've ever known was to drive fast. He's the one that taught me. He was my example. That's why I did it. My father should be the one standing before you right now. He's the one to blame. I could have said all that. Am I still guilty? Yes, I am. What if I said, Your Honor, I've got good news. Oh, you're going to love this. Your Honor, I now confess to you that that law is good. I agree with it. And the good news is that today, right now, I'm going to start following that law. That's nice. Am I still guilty? Yes, I am. Why did I go through all that just now? Because people do the same exact thing with God. There are people that the Bible calls the fool who say, there is no God. There is no judge. I don't have to go to a courtroom to appear before a judge. The Bible says you're a fool. 
Or you might have people appearing before God and say things like, well, God, yes, I did something wrong, but it wasn't as bad as other people. God, I'm not the one to blame. My parents trained me. It's because of the community I lived in, the society I grew up in, from the country I'm from. It's, it's the culture that made me do what I did. You can't blame me for that. It's their fault. What do you think? Am I guilty or not? God has already said in Romans 1 verse 20, they are without excuse. None. Paul says, every mouth is stopped and there's nothing to say. No excuses. No pointing the fingers. Guilty is the charge and guilty we are. Paul says the whole world is guilty of sin. Now I suppose we could also say to God, God, I've got good news. I now agree with your law. It's good. And starting from today, I'm going to try to live by it. Well, number one, you might try, but you'll fail by this afternoon. And not only that, but God says in his word, I require an account of all that has passed. In other words, you might say, starting today, I'm turning a new leaf, God. The problem is you've lived an entire life of sin already. And God will bring that and make you take an account for that. Every work, every word, every deed that you've done. So my friends, the only thing left to say, the only thing left to say before a most holy God is, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Why do I need to be saved? Because you're a sinner. Because I'm a sinner. And we will die in our sin and face the wrath of God in judgment of eternal hell. My friends, I don't know what you were expecting from today's Easter sermon message, but we are sinners in the eyes of God. We are deserving of his wrath and judgment against sin, which is death. And we need to be saved. Why do I need to be saved? Because we are guilty sinners. And unless we're saved, we will suffer the wrath of eternal damnation and hell. That's why. Second question. Okay. Okay. I get it. So now my question is, who can save me? Who can do this thing? Yes, I need to be saved. Who can save me? Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There is no salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Amen? What name? Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's only Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world. You will not find salvation in any other man or woman that's ever lived in the history of the world. No prophet, no priest, no pastor can save you. No one, no philosophy, no religion, no lifestyle can save you. There's only one. His name is Jesus Christ. And God has made one way to heaven. It's by his only son. Jesus is the Savior. 
And how did he do such a thing? Because in saving us, he does two things. Number one, he's the Savior because his life is given to us. And number two, his life was given for us. There's a difference. His life is given to us because his life was given for us. Now let's see what Paul says about this. First, in verse 21 to 23, Paul says, but now the righteousness of God, not man's works, not man's shortcomings, but the perfect righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. First of all, the righteous life of Jesus has been given to us. What kind of life was that? Can we just say righteous? Yes, but what do we mean? The life of Jesus is an infinite contrast between what Paul just said about the world and the ways and the works and the words of man, infinitely separate from that is the life of Jesus Christ. Look at his works. Jesus said, I do all those things that please my Father. Even the people, when they witnessed all that he did, their testimony was, he does all things well. Everything Jesus did, every miracle, every touch, every conversation he had was the wonderful working of God in the flesh. Everything he did was perfect. And that's why God the Father could look upon his son and say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. His words, his words are like no other. His words were full of love, compassion, mercy, grace, kindness. He always knew exactly what to say. You know, Jesus never said something that he later regretted. He always said what needed to be said. He always knew how to say something that reached into a person's life. And what he said was always true and pure and holy. Do you know, one time he spoke, he went to a dead man's tomb, Lazarus, a man who had been dead for four days. Jesus spoke and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And at the obedience of that word, a dead man came walking out of the tomb. But Jesus didn't always have to shout like that. He went to a little girl one time, a 12-year-old girl who was dead. He went to her, held her by the hand, and he said, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she woke up and got up. The words of Jesus. And what about his ways? What about his way of life? His way of life was all about humility, was all about love, was all about obedience and surrender to the will of the Father. As the Bible says, man's ways lead to destruction, leads to misery, no peace. But Jesus, his way 
led him to the cross of Calvary where he gave himself as a sacrifice for us. That's the way of Christ. And that perfect righteousness, everything he did and said and thought, that perfect righteousness of Jesus is given to you. Like a robe that God himself drapes around your shoulders, he credits you with that righteousness of Jesus. How? How does all that happen? Paul says it, through faith. By trusting in Jesus. Just trusting in him. You know, before we talked about that name, Jesus, there is no other name. How many of you, maybe you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you, you were saved because there was a moment where you just simply said, Jesus. I've been in a hospital room before watching a woman dying. And some of the last things she said was just simply, Jesus. Jesus. Sometimes we come to God and we don't know exactly what to say. As sinners condemned in our sin, sometimes we don't know what to say. Paul says, call on the name of the Lord. You'll be saved. Jesus. Just one word can save a person. Jesus. Just by trusting in him, just by putting your faith in him, God gives to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Not only that, it then says in verse 24 and 25, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. This is now Jesus and his life that was given for us. I just want to point out that word propitiation. Propitiation. What does it mean that Jesus is a propitiation? Well, very plainly, it means this, that when Jesus went to the cross, do you know that that cross was meant for you? Do you know that it's you that should have been nailed to that cross to die in your sin? You're the one who deserves that judgment and crucifixion. When Jesus went to the cross, he went as a substitute for you. And dying on that cross, he took upon himself the full weight of the wrath and the judgment of God. The judgment that was meant for you, Jesus took it upon himself. That's propitiation. And it also means that what Jesus did it satisfies everything the Father required. Everything. Jesus on the cross was a perfect sacrifice, accepted by the Father. And He has taken our sin away. You know that word propitiation? Sometimes in your Bible, it might be translated mercy seat. Because just like Sepharah preached on Friday about that veil. And inside the veil of the temple was that Ark of the Covenant. The lid to that box was called the mercy seat. And on one day of the year called the Day of Atonement, all of Israel would gather together, two million people. 
And they came to receive forgiveness from God. And on this day, they would take a, a goat and they would sacrifice the one goat. They would lay their hands upon another goat, confess their sins, and that goat would be let go into the wilderness to die alone. But on that day of atonement, this was the day the high priest could go beyond the veil into that mercy seat. And he always went with blood. He would walk in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And when God saw the blood sprinkled on that mercy seat, he forgave all the people of their sin. You see, because for a time, God allowed the sacrifice of animals, bulls, goats, sheep, birds. God allowed these things for a time. Mercifully allowed them. And he allowed their sins to be transferred to a substitute, the animal that would die in their place, propitiation. The problem is, the blood of bulls and goats and sheep they can cover sin only because God was merciful. Because every sacrifice they offered was a picture of the one who was coming. Every sacrifice was a picture of the one who would come. When John saw that one coming, he said to him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All those sacrifices were pictures of Jesus. When Jesus came, Spiritually speaking, he walked into that Holy of Holies room and sprinkled his own blood upon that mercy seat. And God has forgiven us. We have been cleansed of all of our sin. Propitiation. Jesus is our substitute. And he has satisfied every requirement God has given for sacrifice. For a time, it says, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, in the past, animals were offered by the people. It was the people who set forth the sacrifice of the animal. But in Jesus, Paul says it is God, the Father, who has set forth Jesus. Jesus is God's offering to you, the Lamb of God, to die for your sin. God has provided you the perfect sacrifice. Now, if the life of Jesus is given to us through faith, then how is the life of Jesus given for us through the cross? Through faith. By trusting in Jesus. His life is given for you, his life is given to you. Praise the Lord. Paul later says in 2 Corinthians that the Father made Jesus, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why do we need to be saved? We are sinners, condemned and the wrath of God is coming. We must be saved. Who can save us? Jesus, and only Jesus. But now you might have this third question. The third question is, how can I be sure? I mean, all this sounds so wonderful. It's an amazing story. 
It's an amazing thing that we're hearing today. But how can I be sure that Jesus truly accomplished all these things? How can I be sure that God the Father was truly satisfied by the life and the sacrifice of His Son? How do we know that? The answer, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus is our assurance that what he has done is perfected and we are indeed saved by his name. There were two disciples the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Two disciples were on the road to Emmaus and they were talking to each other on the road. Jesus was crucified. They saw him die. He was put into a tomb. It's now the third day. People are saying his body is gone and they don't know what to make of it. They're confused. And as they're walking, talking about these things, the Bible says that Jesus, the risen Jesus, came walking beside them and they didn't know it was him. I don't know how he did that, but they didn't know it was him. And he said to them, what are you guys talking about? And they said, are you a stranger? Have you not been here for a few days? All of Israel knows what's been happening. And they told him all about what had happened, that Jesus went to the cross and he was crucified, that he was buried and now his body is gone. And then they said to this man who's Jesus, they said, but we were hoping. Oh, we were hoping. We were hoping that this was the one to redeem us. We were hoping that this was indeed the Savior. And then Jesus, still unknown to them, he began to open the scriptures to them. And the Bible says he took them to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. He took them to the prophets and he showed them all that the word of God had been saying about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When he talked to them, they didn't know who he was, but they knew there was something wonderful about him because they said that their hearts were burning within them as he spoke. So they said, please come over, over to our house have some supper with us. And so Jesus came, he took bread, he blessed it, and then he broke it. And then they knew, it's Jesus. And he was gone. Just like that, gone. Those two disciples, they went running to find the rest of the disciples. And when they found them, they said, the Lord is risen indeed. It's true, Jesus is alive. And with those words, all Hope was alive again, and it flooded into their hearts. It burned inside of their souls. They knew Jesus is alive, and everything he promised is true. The resurrection, brothers and sisters, is how we can be sure that Jesus is the Savior. So let me close with giving you at least four reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. Number one, because Jesus said he would die and rise again. I mean, how many times did Jesus say to his disciples very plainly, I am going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. They're going to beat me. They will crucify me. I will be buried and I'm coming back again. He said that several times. When the Jews said to him, what authority do you claim to have? He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. 
and I give my life for the sheep. And he said, no man can take my life. I lay it down myself. I have power to lay my life down and I have power to take it up again. Jesus rose from the dead and it's important to know that because he said, I will rise again. The second reason is a lot like it. The second reason why it's so important that Jesus rose was because all the scriptures had declared he would die and rise again. What did Jesus do for those disciples who didn't believe? He opened the Old Testament to them and showed them. Perhaps he showed them Genesis 22, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Isaiah 53. He showed them all that the scriptures had said about him. God had prophesied the death and resurrection of his son. And all of it came to pass on that morning of resurrection. Third reason it's important, because like we just said, it gives us the assurance that God was indeed satisfied. That Jesus indeed lived a perfect life. He is who he says he was and that he would rise again to glory. If Jesus was a sinner, if Jesus failed, the Father would not have raised him from the dead. The fact of the resurrection shows us we have assurance that God is indeed satisfied. God raised Jesus from the dead and he says to you, behold my son. Let all the angels of God worship him. Let all the earth come and bow down before him and call upon his name and worship. Fourth reason. Fourth reason. Why the resurrection of Jesus is so important? Because it means that we believe in a living Savior today. Not just a man who died 2,000 years ago, but a man who rose, ascended, and right now sits on the throne of heaven, alive forevermore. Do you know, as Jesus was approaching the cross, he knew all that was about to happen. He knew the beatings, the scourging, the crown of thorns. He knew he would be crucified and buried in a tomb. And knowing all that was coming, he didn't shrink away. He was not afraid. Instead, he looked death in the face. And knowing all those things were coming, he says in John chapter 14, I live. And because I live, you also shall live. And indeed, he lives today and he lives forevermore. Praise God. As you do, musicians come forward. Let me show you one of my favorite verses, which will summarize everything now. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he, what? Always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, he's able to save you. And uttermost, it means that he's able to save you completely, perfectly, forever. And this Savior, he always lives forevermore. And right now in heaven, 
There is a glorified man, the Son of God, who sits on the throne. And in his hands are still the piercings, the markings of nails. And in his feet are still the prints of nails. Forever he will wear those wounds. Why? Because forever he will live to testify to all of heaven. Julio is mine. I died for him. David is mine. I died for him. James is mine. They're all mine who believe in me because I died for them and I live forevermore. And if he lives, you live. So as we're about to sing this song together, and I pray that this message really helps you to understand the message of this psalm we're about to sing as well. I want you to consider these questions. Why do I need to be saved? Who can save me? How can I be sure? And I would ask right now, if you need to be saved, call on his name. Call on his name. Let's stand together.